How is classical liberalism doing in Canada? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sabine L. Chidiak. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Sabine L. Chidiak. Sabine joined the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2017, and she is responsible for organizing and executing engaging educational programs for participants across Canada. Before that, for over four years, she worked as a senior policy advisor to the Canadian federal ministers on issues relating to citizenship and immigration. Today, she continues to write and speak about immigration policy as well. Sabine, welcome back to The Curious Task. As always, I mean, you're pretty much right beside me uh, virtually or otherwise when we record an episode, but it's great to have you in the uh, guest seat again. Thank you so much. It's been a minute since I've been on as a guest, so I always enjoy talking to you. And this subject in particular is one I... I'm very passionate about, so I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's get right into it. I mean, as you well know, we base each episode on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how is classical liberalism doing in Canada? As usual, I'd like to start with some context and then go from there. So let's do the context first, and then I'll get into poking and prodding into specific areas with specific questions. So I want to not necessarily define some things, but explore some differentiation of concepts first. Um, I think we've done enough on this podcast about defining classical liberalism itself. I mean, those listening who might not know that can go back to one of our first episodes. And uh, there's various other episodes as well uh, where we define classical liberalism and so on. But without getting into that, I have noticed that in a couple of different presentations you do, Sabine, you do make a point of wanting to remind the audience or anyone listening that they're is a point where it's we have to be very careful to differentiate today's classical liberals or like old style liberals from today's, especially in Canada, conservatives and what's commonly referred to today as like sort of the capital L liberals, for example, or progressives. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, in, in your mind, I want to get into some of those differences. So first of all, why is it important to make sure that we're always making this differentiation? And then we'll actually get into the differences between each. But but first of all, why do you think it's always important to call this out? Because you do it quite often. Oh, I think it's really important because it's not the same at all. <laughs> so classical liberalism is a form of liberal thought that we call like old liberalism or European style liberalism, um, as opposed to modern Western liberal ideology. And it, it advocates for a lot of different important things. Um, but some of the most important ones I would say are toleration, the rule of law, spontaneous order, civil society, um, you know, the primacy of the individual. It, these are things that are really, really important that you won't find in, in modern uh, Western liberal ideology. So to say that, Classical liberals are just liberals, but like a little different doesn't really make sense uh, because the foundation of classical liberalism is pretty different and has a lot of, um, you know, really important uh, disagreements with Western liberal ideology and with Western conservative ideology. Um, Particularly, you're talking about Canadian conservatism and Canadian liberalism, which is distinct uh, in many ways from American or otherwise. So I'm glad that you're pointing to that especially, but we have fundamental differences with, with both. Um, by we, I mean classical liberals. So classical liberalism, I should say, has a fundamental, um, like we have fundamental differences, um, but we also find ways to work together. There are some things where the journey is similar or the uh, the ending of the journey is similar, but either uh, the journey we're taking isn't the same or the end, the end point isn't the same. But we can work together on some ideas with modern liberals and modern conservatives. Um, and sometimes we can't. And that's OK. Right. And so let's and let's get into just a, a couple. I mean, of course, there's a whole laundry list we could probably go through. And we could probably do an hour or two on this type of area of conversation in and of itself. But just to get a flavor of it, uh, let's start with sort of like, again, like what we'll call like sort of modern day or mainstream uh, Canadian conservatism. What are some key differences that you think are always important to highlight when it comes to uh, those uh, mainstream Canadian conservatives and classical liberals? There's a couple of key points that you can think of right off the top hmm. of your head. Well, uh, classical liberals are not modern Canadian or just general small C conservatives because classical liberals believe in dynamism um, and they're not 
tied to tradition. So just a note on dynamism. It's something that I picked up from Virginia Postrel in a really good book called The Future and Its Enemies. Um, dynamism is like constant change, creativity, exploration, and the pursuit of progress versus this idea of stasis where progress is controlled by careful and cautious planning, which is something we can attribute to both conservative thought and liberal and modern liberal thought. This isn't just a conservative thing, um, this cautious planning and being careful and all of that. But, um, you know, classical liberals believe in, in what I'm calling your dynamism and they're not tied to tradition and they don't want to impose their values on others. And a really good, uh, something really important to read if you're interested in this is F.A. Hayek's essay, Why I Am Not a Conservative. Um, and he really um, makes a very good case as to why uh, classical liberalism just isn't conservatism. It isn't just a branch of conservatism, like some people might um, believe, because we have these fundamental differences in in believing in tradition and and, and believing in hierarchies and all of that. So um, it, just, it just doesn't make sense to make it sort of an arm of conservatism because it isn't Mm -hmm. and on the other hand how about like sort of the uh what are commonly referred to especially in canada um as sort of like the the mainstream political liberals capital l liberals in canada where would classical liberal or old style european type liberals uh, be different uh with in in, you know when as opposed to the uh capital l liberals i'm trying to make sure not to trip over saying liberal too many times so it might be easy to to couple up um, classical rules of conservatives uh, because we naturally oppose like communism, socialism, things like that. But it's also these is really easy to couple up classical liberals with modern liberals because we're also on the side of like um, things like immigration. We're open for immigration. We're really, really skeptical of the role of the of the police in people's lives and and how they're they're you know hurting certain minority groups. These are things that actually really matter to us, uh, uh, classical liberals. So it, it's easy to get grouped up also with modern liberals. This isn't just it isn't just easy to get grouped up with modern conservatives. Um, but we can't be also an arm of the modern liberal movement because we don't believe in state control over people's lives. We don't want to impose our values on others. And here's a here's a common theme. Um, I said it twice with conservatives and liberals, or modern conservatives and modern liberals. The thing that we can't ever agree to is to impose values on others. The point of classical liberalism is to allow people to live the lives that make them happy as long as they're not hurting other people. How can we claim to do that when we start saying, uh, but you know what would make you happy? Let me tell you about these four tenets of happiness. Right. Well, once you start doing that, you're not really letting people live the lives that make them happiest. You're living there. You're asking people to live the life that you think would make them happy or that makes you happy. And you want to download it on other people. Yeah. We, we, as, as you said, the keeping without imposing it on others through the state. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and actually, you, you mentioned it earlier, and I, I think you, you made the point concisely, which was great. But I do want to dig into it a little further, you know, um, when it comes back to the, uh, the conservative angle and uh, classical liberals, um, you know, some will say still today, um, especially based on the legacy of things in the past and so on and so forth, that um, conservatives and small C conservatives uh, specifically here um, are kind of like still the obvious partner and the natural allies for classical liberals. Now, I mean, you've already established, as I said, like, you know, that classical liberals are not conservatives, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean allying with them would be impossible, you know, for the sake of argument. And uh, and it's happened in the past, as I said. So uh, as far as that sort of tethering and alliance building, where do you personally stand on that right now to expand that thought a little further? Should classical liberals be more to conservatives now uh, than maybe they have been in the past five to ten years, or uh, or should they can still continue going about doing their own thing? Because as I said, you know, this isn't a silly question. I mean, it might not be as much of a trend now as it was maybe in the seventies, but there still are people today who still think that tighter tethering is probably um, a good idea, and that maybe something has been lost since, or you know, these movements are not as tethered together now, and they want to go back to that. So, so wh- where do you land on this? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so you're talking a little bit about fusionism. And we're not, like, classical liberals are not on the side of conservatism or the side of liberalism. They're on the side of freedom. Anybody who's open to providing humanity with more freedom, I think classical liberals should be open to working with. And the more we push away um, modern liberals or modern progressives, because we're, we have this, like, a lot of classical liberals tend to have this naturally conservative rhetoric and it pushes away um, some allies that we might have in the modern liberal movement. It's not useful to the advocacy of freedom and liberty in this world. And we need a lot of that. 
Right. <laughs> There's a lot of liberalism in this world, even in Canada, where it seems like it's much better than other places. There's a lot of, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, um, about some liberalism that still applies in Canada. We're not going to get anywhere if we really care about freedom, if we really care about the consequences of illiberalism, we cannot achieve anything if we continue or not, I shouldn't say continue, but if we choose to ally ourselves with one side or the other, it doesn't make sense because what do we want? Freedom. How do we want it? Anyway, we can get it. <laughs> so I'm not going to like to just tether myself to one uh, side or the other and then find myself in this conundrum where that side does advocates for something illiberal. And I'm so deep at this point in this in this partnership that it's difficult for me to differentiate myself from that idea and then where have you come as a movement it's it's dangerous right you have to keep yourself open or else uh, you're going to end up in some illiberal spot that you never thought you're going to end up in and that's really that's dangerous for freedom so in your mind people that um are classical liberals or sympathetic to classical liberal type ideas and so on and so forth really what they should be doing is trying to uh either either work with or um be open to the ideas really from from any and all sides as long as that sort of as as you said it sort of all defaults back to the idea of expanding individual freedom and so on and so forth regardless of what exactly. side they're on yeah absolutely why not if somebody wants to come in and help me out with that, or if somebody wants to become a natural ally with me on one subject that I agree with as a classical liberal, how am I going to turn them away just because they're part of a group I don't like? It doesn't make sense to me. Right. That makes sense. Um, and now I'd like to shift gears a little bit into sort of, you know, that was a lot of great context. I think we, you know, drew some lines in the sand there as far as where your thinking is. So I think now with that in mind, we can move on to a couple of more specific points on starting with what the landscape for classical liberalism and classical liberal thought um, is in Canada. I think like, you know, when we say something like, you know, you know, how is this doing in Canada or how's this doing in the United States or anywhere like too generally, it's kind of becomes like a useless discussion because obviously there's millions of people we're talking about. And if you were to provide an answer, that says something like, Oh, these ideas are on the rise generally, that's still not very helpful or if they're on the decline, whatever. So I wanted to kind of divide it out into a couple different spheres, if you will, of, uh, of, of, of society, really, I guess, um, in Canada, especially ones that you're very familiar with. So I want to talk sort of about the intellectual sphere and think tanks first. We'll get to academia and like the political mainstream and students and all that kind of stuff in these other areas you're familiar with in a sec. But specifically when it comes to in the intellectual sphere and think tanks, and when I say intellectual sphere, I mean, you know, the folks that you'd see uh, doing public intellectualism with uh, with the, maybe with an academic background, op-eds, just kind of like, you know, where, where, the, uh, where the literal intellectuals are as far as their expression of ideas in Canadian society. And then on top of that, think tanks as well. How do you think classical liberal or classical liberal thought or even just slivers of the idea, these ideas or seeds of the idea of more freedom are doing right now uh, in, in Canada? What's your feel for that? I think they're doing better than we'd like to, than a lot of people like to say they are, but we can definitely go farther. We have uh, some very good organizations like the Institute for Liberal Studies, but also a lot of our sister organizations that are doing very difficult um, and very important work in Canada um, for issues of freedom. One that pops to my mind is Second Street. I think that organization is great. Um, they don't just like write a report and throw it out there hoping somebody will read it. They talk to individuals, for example, who have been affected by the healthcare system in Canada. So an argument um, that they make is like the healthcare system is just not working for Canadians because people are dying waiting for care. Uh, so obviously something isn't working and it's broken somehow. Instead of just saying that and finding statistics, they go and interview people on video and say, what happened to you? What was your story? Um, how could this have been avoided? Like, can we think of alternatives to the system that better helps people like you who just broke a hip and now your grandma's dead? <laughs> That's not fair. That doesn't happen in other countries. How come it's happening in Canada, which is a first world country and we really pride ourselves on our healthcare system, but grandma died because she hurt herself. That's not possible. Like this shouldn't be happening in a country like Canada. So um, an organization like Second Street is really important, um, I think, for the conversation because they're talking to actual individuals in Canada that have been harmed by government action. Um, that's a, I think that's a great uh, organization. Um, and there, there's so many others, like the Canadian Constitution Foundation takes on, um, you know, they go in, in to the Supreme Court sometimes and just give their opinion on the illiberalism of some constitutional challenge. Um, they do a lot of great work as well. I really encourage people to look into them. So these organizations are on the ground, um, you know, with 
often limited resources, doing what they have to do for liberalism. The Institute for Liberal Studies is another really good example of that. Um, you know, we're a small organization that does a lot of good in this country. We're going to every province, putting on campus talks on classical liberal ideas for students. They love it. They love listening to us. Even the people that disagree with us listen to us and argue with us. And, and we, we'll, we'll probably talk about that more later on as well. They argue with us and they talk, they, they, they like, you know, ask questions, really hard questions, but they're glad to just like be able to listen to a perspective they might not have heard before. We have other programs that um, really enrich young people's lives and, and stays with them um, for a long time uh, in whatever pursuit they end up in. Uh, whether that be like a lawyer or a professor or whatever they end up doing with their life, um, those classical liberal ideas stay with them. We have amazing alumni like you, Alex. <laughs> you are one of those people that uh, you know attended some of our our um, our programming back in the day before right. my time at the ILS. Right. And now look at you, you're like volunteering your time to do this podcast for us because you're giving back to an organization that gave you something important once in your life. I'm not going to speak for you, but I know that that's your story. Uh, I'd love for you to share that story with us now if you'd like. But, um, you know, this is like, this is a long-term impact on you. If you hadn't come to our programming, maybe you wouldn't have been influenced as much with your thought processes to go into this very deep um, intellectual uh, place that you're in at, at this point like you're a writer you're you're very successful in in, in um bring getting your thoughts out there uh, for the world and these are classical liberal essentially classical liberal thoughts that you're advocating for um and like you know i think the ILS might have helped in that way and and you're with us still as an alumni many years later so i don't know if you want to comment on that yeah i mean i'll just i'll just say quickly because i think like uh i want to make sure that we don't spend too much time on the podcast itself just personally or, or the host in this case talking uh, about himself too much but if, if you want to interview me again no problem we'll do it that way but i'll just quickly <laughs> say um yeah no absolutely that's true i think like the institute for liberal studies is a good um is, is a great example of the kind of group that does make a difference i think like as you said we, we've seen it uh with many uh students and even sometimes non-students like you know some older folks that have nothing to do with, with you know they're not in an undergrad or anything else but they're coming to the talks and so on and so forth and you know i've, I've seen it firsthand and i've also heard it secondhand about the kind of impact that it makes on people people's lives and gets them thinking about certain issues whether they agree or disagree on certain issues and i think i i you know you make a true statement there that obviously i wouldn't be literally doing this with the ils if i hadn't actually you know taken the deep dive with the ils at some point with the programming and the kinds of events that were put on and so on and so forth that kind of brought um, more of these ideas to um, my attention but more importantly as i always say it's not just about the ideas at least from my perspective but also providing a forum for ideas to be exchanged uh, as we said even if people agree or disagree it's just the fact that um, the ILS and other classical liberal organizations, not all, but lots of them uh, often, um, you know, put a lot of um, stock and weight on the fact that they're trying to create forums for engagement rather than just have another person or a set of people come up and as you said earlier, download ideas into people's brains, right? So I think that the key really there is create the forum for discussion, at least from my perspective. Um and I know, and I know a lot of the programming specifically that you work on as well with the Institute for Liberal Studies, and you're very passionate about that aspect. Is actually, especially when it comes to the students and so on and so forth, and actually getting that kind of engagement rather than just having people talk at other people. So, um, but um, but I'm going to hold off on the the student <laughs> aspect because that is coming later. Wrapping it back around to um, just to cap off this part, where when I was asking about the intellectual sphere and think tanks, I think so. I think we covered think tanks very well and so on and so forth. But let's talk a little bit more, just a little bit here. And I know you haven't done a statistical analysis analysis on this. I'm not asking you to, to to sort of say, you know, definitively, but what's your sort of feel for like that? Let's call it like the mainstream intellectual sphere, like the kind of way the mainstream media, like especially when it comes to op-eds or guest experts and so on and so forth are talking about certain issues. I mean, obviously, Every country, uh, every modern state uh, pretty much has a problem to varying different extremes where the the intellectual class is always going to call for more government and more things th happening their way. So obviously Canada has that problem to some degree, just as any other society or you know state uh, regime has at this point in time. But I've also personally noticed there's been a couple of, of rays of light. You know, people are, whereas before the pandemic, for example, people might have been like, shocked at the idea that we could even talk about, for example, um, smaller scale community-based education solutions. Um, that might not have really been on the agenda pre-pandemic, for example, but now you, you hear a bit more about that. 
sometimes there's a bit of a, a government flavor to it. But nevertheless, I, I sort of notice at least a couple of different pokes and prods, even in the mainstream intellectual sphere, people that wouldn't call themselves classical liberals necessarily, or even think that's the kind of thing they're talking about. There seems to be a couple of different spots where it seems that these ideas are poking through a little bit. And I just wanted to get your feeling on that too. Obviously nothing's perfect. There's more work to do and we need less state and less oppression in our lives as usual. And that, that battle's not over. But point mm-hmm. being, I noticed that even in the mainstream, personally in the mainstream intellectual sphere, there's been some um, interesting topics brought up recently that have a bit more of a uh, old style or cl- classical liberal-esque type flavor. What's your general feeling on that? As I said, I mean, you can't make a definitive um, statistical claim here, but w- what's your general gut feeling on that one? No, I agree with you. And there's a tendency to be kind of doom and gloom on this subject and say like, oh, everything's just getting worse. And the media's only promoting, you know, these uh, very statist ideas that are very like, based. I don't want to say the word statist like everybody knows what that means, like just based on state intervention, like very interventionist ideas. Um, it's easy to say that. But I, I think that you made a really good point in that question where like post pandemic, there is potential more potential for classical liberal ideas to be heard um you know people are really were really tired of of imposition of certain things on on their lives uh during the pandemic there's you know um a renewed interest in and in how the police dealt with things there's renewed interest in a lot of these topics that classical liberals have been uh waving their hands <laughs> over their head on for many many years like hey guys this is a problem <laughs> right so i think that there's more of that opportunity to to have those conversations even if people don't agree but at least to to make that argument um than ever before and i definitely am finding um for personally one of my one parts of my job is to find professors to talk on to speak on these subjects just with students and and for the podcast and i haven't had that much trouble finding people <laughs> to talk about these topics so um the, i think the intellectual class um is it's a lot more welcoming to these ideas than people might give it credit for. And also, I think the media actually invites people on to talk about these things a lot more than perhaps like 10 years ago they might have. Uh, that's my personal perspective on it. I don't know if you've got a different idea on what's going on. No, I think I think you pretty much nailed it. And I kind of opened that, that section of our conversation by saying that, like, you know, it feels like there's spots of hope in this sort of area. Um, you know, there's always like some degree of, um, I'll say like, default people defaulting to the idea of like oh this is a problem and then you get a lot of people at the end last paragraph of their op-ed or whatever and that's why the government just spent 80 billion dollars on this or control this Mm -hmm. which is you know that part's not fun but but nevertheless the fact that i think you actually hit the nail on the head there the fact that people seem to be more at the very least open to uh open to opening some of these subjects again is very key whether it be in education and healthcare. i think that's another great example like you mentioned before you know healthcare in canada right now and um I'm always trying to catch myself as a personal mission right now. I always want to say, because I know a lot of listeners in America too, it's very it's a misnomer to talk about healthcare in Canada. Just a public service announcement here, because the provinces run healthcare differently across yes. the board. It's a federal mandate that people across Canada should have access to healthcare and you know have health insurance and coverage and so on and so forth. But saying healthcare in Canada is sometimes too general of a statement. Canadians know sometimes what we're talking about, but our other friends across the world, I just little public service announcement there. It's a personal mission that I'm trying to actually stop saying healthcare in Canada. <laughs> Canada. Because as people well know, if I go to Trois-Rivières, Quebec, and on the other hand, I go to Vancouver the next day, I might be receiving very different healthcare and very different kinds of facilities. So that's just a, a personal thing I've been trying to really highlight to people recently. Canadian-style socialized healthcare. Yeah. like, like a, yeah. I mean, Generally, that's what it is across the board on in every yeah, province. Yeah, exactly. generally what it is. It might change here and there on the... On yeah. the um, yeah, and that, exactly. The idea that, and without getting into a whole healthcare episode here, it's the idea that we have an insurance and and uh, and so on, and we're covered. But but all all that to say, um, like I, I think like you know education, healthcare, where I stopped and talked about it there, and and other issues uh, as well. I think you know people are at least open to talking about these subjects, whereas before maybe five ten years ago, people were basically saying, well, what are you talking about? Like this is the way we do things in Canada, or people might say like, no no no, like you know public the public education system's great. We need more of this. Uh, you know that's not the case anymore. So regardless if people are coming from the classical liberal perspective with their solution, I would say at least people are willing to, um, to, to sort of discuss the problem. And I think a point you made there is very key as well, that I think a lot of people are more open to hearing about different points of view and uh, solutions 
being matched with a certain problem than other people give them credit for. I mean, if you approach people cranky and you act like they're idiots and don't know anything and that, you know, these are just a bunch of like, you know, mainstream liberals or capital L liberals or just a bunch of conservatives that don't know what they're talking about. You know, that tends to cause some of the problem of engagement with some of these folks, I find, you know, I think if people are very receptive to these ideas, especially more now, at least to discussing them, as long as people are coming with sort of, a, you know, good faith to the discussion, at least, you know, that's my feeling, you know, it's a little rambly, but I mean, uh, that's my reflection on it, too. I think the landscape is pretty good in the intellectual sphere. Not that I mean, relatively, you know, obviously, nothing's anyone's ideal, Um but but yeah, I think I think it's a lot more open now, at least. I think there's a lot of doors that have been kicked open for discussion that weren't before, really. Yeah, I think one thing I still worry about a little bit is people worrying that when they put their ideas out there, they might uh, receive backlash for it. Yeah. And that is still, I think, an ongoing problem that um, is unfortunate because mm-hmm. when we start pushing down ideas, like people don't have alternatives. Uh, and when you're pushing away alternative ideas, it's very difficult for people to actually, first of all, believe in the idea that they're yep. supposed to believe in because there's going to be holes. There's no no idea is perfect. Um, and then there's nowhere to look for the answers to those holes. And second of all, it just makes society more liberal, um, the yep. fact that we can't have those discussions. So I think that's one one area I'm still worried about a little bit. Yep. But absolutely um, it's definitely not as bad as it used to be <laughs> you know it's not as bad as it used to be and i think actually one example of this and, and one thing i'm finding now um a lot more than before as i've been paying more attention to these issues is that for some reason like firearms and firearms policy is actually just a good metaphor and like and for everything like like it like kind of like what you just said as soon as you said it, it remind me of the recent and uh, if everyone should check out the episode that would have been released just previous to this one where we talked to dr uh Noah Schwartz about firearms and firearms policy in Canada and what evidence-based uh, policy and means and what where the stats really are and so on and so forth. But like, um, like you know, even on that issue, whereas before, um, you know, in in a lot of cases, like you know, anyone sort of raising their head or talking about fire, you know, firearms in Canada, um, in, in some circles, without uh, you know. Um, without just sort of outright saying, I hate this stuff and I want it banned, you know, you might have had your head bit off. But even now, like you see areas where uh, for various reasons, like, um, you know, specifically the Liberal Party tried to push some legislation, even people in the NDP, the New Democrat Party caucus, you know, got called by, you know, um, you know, their MPs got called uh, by, by people in their, uh, you know, ridings that would have voted for the NDP, for example, you saw the uh, you know, um, Aboriginal Federation of Nations, like, speak up on the issue as well. Um, you know, obviously, the conservatives have a base of people who identify as conservative that, you know, are firearms owners, that's always going to be there. But even beyond them, it seemed like, um, in this case, and all political parties do this, I'm not just picking on the liberals, but like where this particular political party thought, you know, you have an open and shut issue, you just say a couple talking points, and we can't even talk about this anymore. You know, they sort of found that, you know, trying to do um, just some new legislation, sort of ram it through and have nobody notice for whatever they were doing, just sort of backfired from many different angles, not just the opposition party, right? So I think that's a really good example from many different directions. You know, even even the Conservative Party, I think, to flip it around, has found that on certain issues, even in their own caucus and within their own quote-unquote base, you know, it's not just the old conservative talking points again from the late 90s, early 2000s, right? Like, so... All, all that to say, I think there's a lot of different forums that are open for different people to weigh on in issues um, in, in many different uh, ways now. I also remember a time when talking about reforming the police was very controversial. Right. Not as controversial now, is it? No, no, <laughs> absolutely we not. We can definitely have more conversations on like, maybe we should have more community policing. Maybe we should end qualified immunity. Maybe we should do this and maybe we should do that. Maybe we should uh, have a better dialogue between law enforcement and minority groups. Yeah. Um, these are all things that were crit- like that seem like criticisms of law enforcement that I don't think we would have that a lot of people would have been able to get away with um, 30 years ago. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. No, that's a good point. And I think like a lot of people, unfortunately, have this idea in their head that anytime um, they meet someone who's quote unquote very pro police, let's just say for the sake of the argument now, um, that you're talking to someone who is, you know, either to some degree or to an extreme degree, uh, you know, within the, the the quote unquote conservative type of ideology. But in my experience, that's actually not very true. You'll find a lot of people um, in many areas of the country in Canada who would happily, I'm just using this as a point of to gauge where somebody is on the political spectrum or in their own thinking, someone who would happily cast a vote in many cases for the Liberal Party of Canada or, you know, you know, they're happy to see Justin Trudeau as prime minister. You know, they have no problem with that 
sort of set of policies and the way he talks about things. But even t- 10 to 15 years ago, the discussion of, you know, to that average person in the suburb, let's say, voting for the Liberal Party about, you know, police and police reform, um, they could be anywhere from extremely pro-police, like, you know, point blank, as in, like, you know, no discussion here type type of situation, uh, or, or at the very least, they're not even thinking about it. Um, now that this discussion is opened a lot right now, like like you were saying, like, you know, w- what is policing? What should the functions of it be? You know, oh, yes, they do these 85 things here. Should they really be doing all 85 things? Like, should these institutions be structured this way? Like, some of these are very structural discussions about the way, you know, quite frankly, key aspects of the society are running and people are actually talking about them now sometimes it's very diet coke when you end up in the mainstream media you know here's point a here's point b you know do you agree with point a or point b you don't get of course all the radical politics represented all the time but the door i guess the theme of this point we're on here is and i would agree with you on is even on this issue um one that was very sensitive uh for for many years like the door has opened a lot wider relatively speaking than it was even 10 to 15 years ago yeah, and it's, that's why it's really important to put on talks as an organization like the ILS on these subjects and and get people talking about it and thinking about it more deeply because we can and, and we should. Yep, absolutely. And then actually on that note then, so we talked about the intellectual sphere and think tanks, spent a lot of time on that. Um, I want to talk a bit more now about like academia in general. Sometimes we hear about academia as the sphere and as this landscape. Um, and unfortunately, I have to say this is a huge problem with rhetoric in the US right now because I think it does a lot my personal opinion is that it does a lot more harm than good to think like this. And it also like shuts down a lot of valid conversation. And, and if someone says it even flippantly, I find they're just being silly in a conversation. It's really not helpful, but people have this idea, you know, academia is like this sort of um, Marxist hellhole or state socialist mm-hmm. hellhole. And like, that's all every academic mm-hmm. outside of the economics profession that you'll meet is basically someone that just wants everything to be like, you know, uh, Venezuela or the USSR. I'm obviously exaggerating a little bit, but the point of this sort of like overwhelming capital P progressive left liberal bias in academia. Um, you actually work with academics all the time. You don't just watch six o'clock news every night and form an opinion on a university <laughs> and how that system's working. You're, you're conferencing with these people. You go to conference with them, you organize things with them. And, uh, you know, the ILS doesn't only engage with academics who wear a classical liberal t-shirt all the time. So what, what's your feeling of the academic landscape when it comes to academia, specifically your professors and those actually working in academia? Yeah, I mean, the, my favorite thing to say to people that sh- to shock them a little bit is that I find things aren't as bad as others may want you to think on campus. <laughs> Shocking, I know. <laughs> uh, but yes, I as you said, I'm on campus a lot. We do a lot of campus talks. Um, so I'm actually speaking with students and bringing speakers that maybe some people would think, oh my gosh, like, didn't they... Didn't they set off the alarms? Didn't they protest the speaker? Didn't they do this? Didn't they do that? No, they didn't. <laughs> They actually wanted to listen and we do not. And there's this idea that maybe like only classical liberals or libertarians come to these talks. Absolutely not. We have a very diverse group of students who come out to our talks at on campus. Um, and we actually partner with campus clubs on campus that have nothing. They're not just like Students for Liberty or like those classic. I love to work with Students for Liberty, but they aren't the only organizations that we work with. We work with political science associations, philosophy associations, economic associations, uh, student associations, um, because they're interested in these ideas. They want their membership and their student body to have this um, you know, ability to have a really great conversation on, let's say, um, community action in fighting climate change. That sounds pretty classical liberal to me. I've got a great speaker on that. Let's bring him over and have that talk on campus. And um, you know, those are important conversations that we're having or something on, uh, you know, the dangers of immigration. We'll bring somebody and say like, oh, immigrants are actually really uh, useful for the economy. They really improve things for the host nation, um, you know, and this is how we improve their lives by letting them in. And and all these uh, facts may not be facts, they're actually myths. And here's how, um, you know, these are great conversations that we have. We're able to have them on campus and students are largely open to new ideas and they're respectful in their disagreement in Canada. Um, but a large part of that is due to the fact that um, students want are in university. A lot of a lot of students are in university because they want to acquire knowledge. 
<laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. But believe it or not, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Acquiring knowledge means listening to ideas that are new to you that you might not have heard in the classroom. These are the ideas that we are presenting to these students. So even if they disagree with us, they'll come out. They will argue with us at the end of this conversation. Like they will, they will not, they're not like, you know, just going to leave and just talk smack about the, the, the thing with their friends afterwards. They will, um, they're very confident in arguing with the speaker. And we love that. We want them right. to do that. So it's a, in large part due to the students being open to ideas, but it's also in large part to the way that we put on our talks. Yeah. And if you'll give me some time to talk about this, I think it's a really important conversation to have because, um, you know, what's the best way to advocate for liberty on campus? Um, it's doing the work, going on campus and having those talks, but there's so much more to it than that. Um, if anybody out there is looking to put on talks or doing uh, sort of activism on campus, like this is for you. This section is for you. Um, you need to invite a speaker, not because he or she is controversial and is going to fill a 250 seat classroom. Um, you want to invite them because they have something interesting to say about classical liberal concept. Something that's relevant to student lives, something that's relevant to our society in general. Um, I think it's important to have a, a talk on like the 16th, like, oh, you know, Adam Smith and David Hume. It's, that, that's really important. But when a student comes to you and says, I like, we're really concerned about indigenous issues. We're really concerned about climate change. Um, are there any classical world ideas on this? The answer is absolutely yes. We have, we have things that we want to say about that. Um, uh, you know, and maybe the person that we're bringing in isn't the guy who has a Patreon, <laughs> who ha- who's going like, to attract 150 students to sit in the classroom and listen to them because they're super controversial. Right. Or they have 150,000 followers on Twitter. That's not important. The important thing is to talk about ideas um, in a respectful manner and allow um, for speakers who respect students and who are willing to answer hard questions. Yeah. Uh, so when a student says, you know, you're wrong. Here's why the first reaction isn't to say like, oh, you're just a stupid, like lefty kid. You don't know anything. I've been researching this for 35 years. What the heck is your problem? I'm like, go sit in a corner. You don't right. know anything. That is not the response. Even if you want to say it, maybe that's, <laughs> you're just like upset. You're like, what are you talking about? You got to stop. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to find speakers that are respectful of different ideas. Um, so they'll say, OK, well, why do you think that? And maybe we can have a conversation on that. Um, you know, I, I, a story I always tell is like of one of my colleague, Matt Bufton, who stayed behind one time for 75 minutes talking to students who were really upset with his presentation on classical liberalism at a school, at a university in Canada that many people would consider very left-leaning. And he just sat there and they were just like, they were hurling question after question to add him like what do you think about this what would you say about that how could you say this when this is happening and he just wanted to understand where they were coming from so he sat with them and he had a conversation with them he wasn't shouting they weren't shouting he wasn't shouting they were just having a conversation and at the end of it and I was there with him because I helped put this thing together they were saying thank you to me for bringing him <laughs> to the campus and these people were like I don't agree but I really like listening to this idea and I'll think about it more, but thanks yep. for coming and like not being afraid to have this conversation with us. And like the fact that when, when students see that you're willing to listen to them and you're willing to learn from them as well, because we don't have all the answers, there might be a blind spot in something that we're saying as well, right? Like maybe they have a great, um, like a great concept that we haven't even considered. Uh, sometimes when I do my immigration talks, I think I have it all figured out. But then a student comes to me and says, you know, there's this example from like 1973 when we did this and that and didn't really work out for these immigrants. I'm like, okay, well, well, that's a really interesting concept. I'm going to look into it more and, and add it to my next conversation. Like we have to learn from students too, just like they're learning from us. So having having um, speakers with the kind of personality where they're okay with that and they're open to learning from students and to hearing from them and answering hard questions that might irritate others, <laughs> I think it's really important. And the, the last but not least mm. uh, thing that I would say to people who want to advocate for liberty on campus is that you need to find out what topics matter to students. Like, right. you might think some topics are really important, but students don't actually care. <laughs> like, more likely than not, when they come to you with uh, this, like I said, indigenous or uh, issues or climate change issues, um, we can most of the time find a classical liberal idea that's tied into that and that they'll probably even agree with, believe it or not. <laughs> Uh, or they'll add to their uh, repertoire of, of ideas on the matter, which is good enough for me. 
Um, you know, you don't want to shove topics down people's throats. You don't want to keep saying like, oh, socialism, 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 you know, like it's an important topic and I want to have that conversation. But sometimes you get to the ideas of why socialism might not work by talking about things like climate change and like the fact that, you know, government or state intervention isn't working. We've been dealing with climate change for how many years now? Nothing is really changing that well. If we keep yelling at government to do something, it's like you're yelling at a brick wall. What are some alternatives to this? Like maybe Eleanor Ostrom style community action. Uh, let's talk about that. You haven't heard about Eleanor Ostrom before? Well, let me tell you more. Right. <laughs> like what's the way that you, you go after this stuff? You don't have to like, you don't have to be like, why is socialism bad? Why is the state not working for you? There's so many other ways to talk about this that um, are just as relevant. Right. Because these are the topics that students care about. Yeah. No, and, and I think one key thing you said there, too, is also like um, the, the approach of how um, how these topics are or these events, I guess I should say, or these these engagements are put together and how they're and, and who's talking. Like, it sounds so silly because the basics of, a, hey, you're going to throw an event or you're going to put on a lecture. Um, let's really consider seriously who's talking and what we're talking about and how the event is structured. Like, obviously, you're going to consider these things. But the fact is, is that, you know, um, one way or another on these types of decisions can really make or break whether or not you have a productive session or just one that's really good for a YouTube hit or a million. And and the fact is, I think personally, and of course, you you tell me if you think I'm wrong, because this is certainly your area of expertise, not mine, you know, as as a, you know, someone direct directing this stuff at the Institute for Liberal Studies, I just get to attend the events after all your hard work and putting them on. Um, But um like you know some of this some of this idea where you know students are all rowdy and everybody's upset and you have a bunch of like ups, uh, upset people on campus you know there's a degree of like especially in the United States I find there's a degree of self-fulfilling prophecy to this I mean if you're going to bring in a controversial speaker and I don't mean they're controversial because although some people in the states like to think this because they're just talking about something they are controversial because they spend three hours talking about why they as a white person should say the n-word or something like that and that's okay and then you bring them onto campus and then you put up all these flyers and hype everyone up and then you you know get a nice rowdy auditorium rally style type of event going well you no wonder you're going to have a bunch of students really upset and taking the mic and not giving it away and screaming and yelling or whatever i mean whether or not they're dealing with that appropriately or not is a whole different topic of discussion i mean you can have that as well but i mean like i said there's a degree of self-fulfilling prophecy to this uh you know if you're going to talk about all these kids are just a bunch of leftist brainwashed fools and academia is brainwashing them and look they don't even want to hear about this topic it's like well for example if you look at an ILS event, we're having, you know, Dr. So-and-so or expert with, you know, maybe they're not a doctor and whatever, but, you know, expert with 30 years of experience dealing with this type of stuff, so-and-so is going to talk about this issue here and actually engage with you versus grab a microphone and sit in a chair and laugh at you for 30 minutes. I mean, these these are two different kinds of events. And I think that just the way people go about engaging uh, students and, um, you know, people on campus or campus culture, to use like the word that I was talking about, what's going on on campus, right? Like the way people are creating engagement on campus, I think, is is just as key as what's being discussed as well. Yeah, and it's such a it's such a dangerous cycle, too, because then that happens. People get upset and then they say, look, see students on campus. They are getting upset just by talking about normal things. And then you get and then they make a lot of money through their Patreon because they have this 30 second hit that they've now accumulated. Um, and then this, and then people are like, wow, this is way worse than I thought it was. People get really upset about it. And then it's like this, this circle of negativity that you can never escape. Right? So, so it's important to talk about ideas. Um, it's important to bring people in that talk about these ideas in a peaceful way. Uh, in, a, in a way that's you can have respectful debate. You have a willingness to learn concepts that may not fit into your current worldview, um, and you talk about these things with respect. These are, if I had to, you know, put all of this into one sentence, that that's what it would be. No, I think that's a great way to summarize it because I was going to ask to tie a bow on that, and you kind of already did, so we can skip that point. So that's awesome. So I'll just say to end the section off. Uh, so, so you think the kids are all right? So to use the last bit of our time here, the final swing of it, then uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was. At the end of the day, how do you think people can 
that consider themselves classical liberals or at the very least sympathetic with these types of ideas and issues best advocate for them. I mean, we talked about the style of advocacy could be, uh, you know, um, professional, uh, willing to engage, you know, um, open to engagement, open to other ideas and so on and so forth. But beyond that kind of thing, like what are some ways that these ideas can become more mainstream or be brought more to the mainstream? Like what are the best ways to advocate for these types of ideas in your mind? Oh, I can definitely talk about this for hours, and I, I love this conversation. Um, but before I get into that, if you don't mind, I just want to talk about some things that we have to still that that in Canada things might seem fairly peaceful, uh, tolerant, welcoming. Um, but I do want to talk about some things that as a nation we can do to become more free, so that I can make the argument that we have to do these things in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we are very lucky in Canada. We live in a fairly peaceful society. It's largely tolerant and welcoming, like I said earlier. Um, but there are some things we can work on. And some of the things that um, I can think of off the top of my head are uh, we still have a large and over-encompassing government and it encroaches on people's lives a bit too much in many ways. We just had uh, Jay Goldberg on the podcast talking about Bill C-11. Um, I think that's a really good example of that. It's something that a lot of Canadians may not even know is going on and it's going to impact their lives um, pretty severely every time they go online. Uh, and even so, um, you know, it's not a very visible bill, even though uh, people like the Game Taxpayer Federation, they're they're jumping up and down trying to make a lot of noise on it. Um, but, you know, if this thing passes, basically you're going to, the, the Canadian government's going to decide what you see on the internet. That's an over-encompassing government that encroaches on people's lives. Um, we're not as welcoming when it comes to immigration as we ought to be for a country with as many resources um, and as much land that we have. Uh, we are a bountiful country, and there's really uh, not a lot of excuses for us not to accept people in, in Canada, as long as we know that they, um, you know, that we've looked at their backgrounds, we know that they're, um, you know, safe people to bring into the country and all of that as much as we can. Uh, but, you know, why are we not uh, doing more on that? Why are we finding ways to close down uh, parts of our border to immigrants who are trying to flee terrible situations? Why are we not opening up our, um, you know, our the numbers that we allocate to refugees and when we know that certain refugee or uh I mean, you could listen to the three other <laughs> podcasts I did on this on the Curious Task and, and other places on private sponsorship of refugees. Why are we not opening up that allocation of numbers when we know that it works and we know that they give back to society so, so well in Canada um, that we benefit so much as a country and they benefit so much um, as human beings? Um, you know, uh, we've come quite short in our treatment in respect of Indigenous communities and other marginalized communities in Canada. Uh, you know, as classical liberals, we should be outraged by that. We should be fighting against that every day, uh, every day that we don't, uh, you know, sound the horn on the treatment of and respect of Indigenous communities in this country. We are not doing our job as classical liberals. Um, we could always have more freedom of speech and freedom of association. Uh, in my opinion, the problem is not as bad as it is in the U.S. and other places here in Canada, but it's still a problem. And the fact that there's any issue with that, uh, even a 1% issue, is an issue um, that classical liberals should be very, very uh, aware of. And, you know, it's important that we work on uh, fighting back against that through the organizations that I talked about, us, the Institute for Liberal Studies, KCCF, you know, Second Street. Um, Kane Taxpayer Federation, all these great organizations that that are worried about government encroachment on people's lives. <clears throat> but outside of that, um, I think your initial question is, you know, how do you do it uh, as just a, a person who's not in one of these places? And, and there are lots of things you can do. Um, first of all, you'd say, uh, well, it seems to me like we should be uh, going after this politically because, you know, it is uh, if we're not happy with how government is acting, then we should be changing government. Well, sometimes it's useful to advocate for things politically, but we have to remember that it's not the be all and end all of activism in Canada. You may have something passed, but the next government can reverse that action when they're in power. It's not that hard to do. Um, you can get the right politician in. Um, but as we learn from things like uh, public choice theory, that's not useful because you can never really guarantee what they're actually going to do when they're in power. Who's really the right politician at the end of the day? Uh, so political activism is not always the best form of activism. One good example of uh, how uh, political activism does work um, is what is the work that Peter Jaworski is doing on blood plasma. Um, that's something like that's affecting people's lives. The fact that you can't get plasma therapies that 
um, save people's lives because there's this strange uh, idea in Canada that if you pay for blood, it's like suddenly, uh, but for, if you pay for blood plasma, then it's suddenly not good enough or, you know, it it's ruining altruism or whatever. Meanwhile, people are dying because they don't have blood plasma therapy. He's in abundance. And then Canada goes and buys blood plasma from the United States. So we really are paying for it at the end of the day. It's just an absurd thing. Um, so much out there from Peter Jaworski, who is an expert on this. I am not an expert on this, but it is something that upsets me. Um, you know, he he pushed the political button on that one. And, you know, something happened in Alberta. They changed the idea there. And now you can pay for blood plasma in Alberta. So these are things that are important politically. Um on the other side of the political argument, there's the story of Anthony Fisher and F.A. Hayek. So Anthony Fisher is a uh, is a prominent businessman from the 40s and 50s. He, um, after the war, after World War II, he came back to England and he saw that a lot of government mention in people's lives. He was getting very upset about it. And he read The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek. And F.A. Hayek was still around at the time. So he went and met with him. And he said, I'm going to join politics so that I can change things. And F.A. Hayek was like, uh no <laughs> that is not how you're gonna do it if you want to do something you've got to do it on the intellectual side um so eventually he goes to the united states it's a really cool story and if you can get your hands on uh a biography of 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 um of anthony fisher i really recommend you do because he's such a fascinating person and i didn't know much about it until my boss matt buffton told me about all of this and and then i i just got really into it um so uh i'm just recounting the story that i heard from him and so um he went off and, and to the united states and he met up with uh with um with fee actually the foundation for economic education who got him to meet up with some people who did chicken farming <laughs> in the united states and so he went back in uh to to um the uk and he uh went back and he except he he set up the first battery cage chicken farm and that made him a millionaire. And then he used that money to set up the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is still one of the leading classical liberal think tanks in the world, uh, located in, in England. Um, and then he continued to do this. So based on the idea that he got from Hayek, he continued to um, found these organizations. He founded the Atlas Network, which is still very much active now, um, and that I owe a lot of my own knowledge on on how to work in a think tank and how to run uh, an organization. Uh, they're still providing training and, and great resources to organizations, like hundreds of organizations across the world that are fighting for for uh, fighting against illiberalism. And then that turned into founding organizations like like the Fraser Institute in Canada and other organizations like that. And eventually, even though he didn't himself sit down and found it, organizations like the ILS exist because uh, we learn a lot from organizations like the Atlas Network. Um, so, you know, it was like a snowball effect. Instead of joining uh, a political party, becoming like an MP, he affected generations of activists and he allowed them to have that that basis from which to fight illiberalism. And I think that that that's a, a strong argument that it isn't only through politics that we can achieve these things, that politics is only one tool, not the only tool. Um, you know, and activism comes in different forms. You can work for an organization, um, you know, student activist organization, or you can find a career in it like I have and like my colleague Matt has um, at the ILS. So like we're working in an organization that seeks to offer young people an alternative to the ideas they're commonly exposed to. And this way people go on to be professors, teachers, lawyers, politicians, whatever, with the ideas of classical liberalism in hand. And that even makes larger waves of change uh, that lead to political change that can easily be altered. So when you change ideas and the fundamental ideas in society, it's very hard for a politician to alter those laws that have been enacted uh, based on those ideas because people will fight back a lot more on that uh, and isn't that what we really want at the end of the day that we want illiberalism to be something that you cannot um, cover up you cannot just pass a law an illiberal law without somebody pushing back on it um if you can't do the above things like i that i just said like you if you you, you can't become a politician you can't affect people in power you can't be an activist just you can live your own life in a way that follow that allows for tolerance, for peace, for non-compliance to injustice. When you see injustice, you stand up to it. Um, in, in most 
and if all not all jobs in your own personal lives and you know that's good enough so you know and support those organizations if you have the financial ability to do so volunteer with them or you know just recommend them to your friends or the, the students in your life or something like that that's good enough there you go wow i mean that, that was a great overview and a great uh, dive into that uh that, that pillar of conversation I wanted to have. I had some follow-ups listed here that I thought we'd get into, but you honestly knocked all the follow-ups down as you went along. So that that's really excellent. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess, spoiler alert, surprise, that one of the people that works at an institute that is ultimately about spreading and exploring ideas really just thinks that people, even in a big way or in a small way, can just be really well off just uh, exploring and spreading these ideas themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to have a PhD to... <laughs> <laughs> to advocate for these things like please go out and just talk about them talk to your friends talk to your neighbors you know write an article write an op-ed anything right like everything helps absolutely and and honestly so our time is pretty much wound down here but before we do formally wrap up i do want to give you a chance to plug freedom week uh from uh, from the institute for liberal studies that's coming up in august so why don't you tell us about especially for those who don't know let's start with the 101 real quick high level summary uh what what students can look forward to how they could sign up the whole the whole shtick let's just uh give it some time here as as it does deserve that time so why don't you give us a little plug for freedom week yeah i i love freedom week so i always love talking about it so much fun uh so this year it's happening at mcgill university from august 14 to 19 uh, the deadline for applications is April 15th. So what is Freedom Week? Freedom Week is a week-long intellectual adventure, I'd even call it, where we bring together, you know, 35, 40, sometimes more, sometimes less students. Um, it's a competitive program. So you apply and then uh, you're either accepted or not accepted. Um, you just show up, you listen to these great professors talk about classical liberal ideas. And it isn't just a place where you listen to a lecture and then you go home. Um, you hear what the professor has to say with this, this distinguished distinguished group of professors, I'd say. Um, talk about these different ideas in law and public policy and economics and philosophy and so on. And then you're able to discuss those ideas with those uh, professors and with your colleagues that are sitting around you. We have discussion groups. Um, there's meals. The professors come to the meals. They'll just talk to you casually. The best thing about Freedom Week, in my opinion, is that everybody wants to be there. Like in a university, a lot of kids are there because like their parents force them to show up or they're there because they think they're going to become like so-and-so if they get this degree. Um, so they're not really there for that intellectual adventure part of it. Um, but the students who apply to this are the kind of people who want to be in a classroom for five days in the summer <laughs> talking about ideas. And our professors actually want to be there. Isn't that a nice idea? Like they aren't there because they it's part of this um, a part of their job where they really rather be writing their book. They want to be there because they want to have these discussions with these students um, and have these debates and, and talk about ideas. So you're able to do all of that um, throughout the week. And and we cover meals, accommodations, uh, and everything like that. All you have to do is make your way to McGill for the duration of the seminar. Um, and I really encourage you to check out more information on that. We have um, a lot more info on that and pictures and, 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 and a list of the amazing professors that we have coming. Um, liberalstudies.ca slash freedom dash week. Um, I'm really excited for it this year. It's going to be great. And please come just because... Uh, nobody wants to be doing stuff on Zoom anymore. <laughs> Let's meet up together in real life. <laughs> yeah, what a novel idea. And, and just one more time to wrap up because we went through everything right there. So just one more time on the deadline to apply and where the event's being hosted. Yes. Yeah, so the deadline is April 15. Please put your application in before then. It's coming up soon. Uh, and it's happening August 14 to 19. Um during my birthday week. So you can say hi birthday to me on August 17 too. There you go. There. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> and it's happening. It's happening at McGill University. So in Montreal. Awesome. Well, I mean, it is time to go to our formal wrap up for sure. Right now we've talked about a lot. The keen listener will have also noticed that we didn't do a break this episode. So there was lots to talk about and we just kind of plowed through. I realize now. So, that's what happens when you have the host and the producer just talking to each other, but that's okay. Well, you know what? It'll be. I'm calling this an exception episode. I've made the exact decision. No break this time, but uh, so I'm not even going to record that part. But all that to say, formal wrap up time. Talk, when you talk about liberalism with your friend, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. See what happens. Um, we it, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on an explanation of the question. So, Sabine. <clears throat> 
Let me ask you what, what you know to be, of course, the official last question that I ask everybody to make sure the guest has the last word. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how classical liberalism is doing in Canada? In other words, if you wanted someone to leave listening to us here with just one, two, or a few takeaways, if anything, what would you want them to take away on this point and in this theme? Yeah, I think I'd like them to take away that we're doing okay, but there's always more we can do. There's always a certain liberalism that we can be fighting against and working uh, against in different ways. Uh, and you don't have to do it in one way or another. You don't have to do it in a political sense. You don't have to only do it in an activism sense. There's so many ways to to do this. Um, if, if anything, just like you know, reading about the ideas, learning about ideas, that's even a good way to do it. Um, so there's so many ways to to work against the liberalism in Canada. And I, I really encourage people to find the way that works best for them. Excellent. I think we'll leave it there. So Sabine Elchidiak, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. As always, it was great. Thank you, Alex. You're a great host. You know that I think so. <laughs> Thanks. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.